the substitutionary atonement. Short way to understand this is that Jesus took our place. He became sin. Not that he became literal sin, but that our sin was imputed or given to him and his righteousness was therefore imputed into us or given. It's sometimes referred to as a double imputation. It is not fair. It is a tragedy that the King of Glory, the only righteous one who ever walked the face of the earth, would receive my sin and he would give me his righteousness. Every time we wake up in the morning and throughout the day, we should be thankful for the atoning work of Jesus. See, last week we we left the scene as Jesus was hanging on the cross between two criminals. And as historical as they are, they are still a lesson in some regard as one of the malefactors, as the Bible calls them, cries out to the Lord and asks for forgiveness. The other is condemning. Where do we find ourselves amongst the man in the middle? Are we condemning and prideful and wicked? Are we holding on to our own sin? Or do we cry out to to the Lord Jesus in repentance? Are we like the one that begs for forgiveness? Or are we like the one who will die in their pride and sinfulness? Lessons from the man on the middle cross, but also from two criminals. A theological lesson from two criminals. So I want us to continue our journey through Mark with a message that I have entitled, The Veil is Torn. The Veil is Torn, a message of reconciliation. So beginning at verse 33, I want to highlight that the weight of our sin lay heavy upon the Lord. The weight of sin lay heavy upon the Lord. The Bible tells us in our reading that the sixth hour had come and darkness had covered the whole land until the ninth hour. The hour had come for the Lord Jesus to fulfill one of the greatest events in history, namely his own death. We can say that the greatest events or the event in all of history happened in a three-part series, if you will. The first greatest event, or the greatest event to ever occur, part one, was that the Lord came and robed himself in flesh at the incarnation. That the second person of the triune Godhead, God the Son, and came and robed himself in flesh. The second part of this greatest story to ever happen, or to ever find itself in the history of history, is that the Lord Jesus died on the cross, and then rose again on the, third, on the third day. The third part of that is this, that he is returning again. Amen? You believe that? He's returning. He's returning again. And so we find ourselves right in the middle of this greatest event in the history of history, and that is the death 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that darkness crept across Jerusalem from 12 p.m. until 3 p.m. And in the same way that the criminals on the cross were historical people, we gather application from this historical event as well. In fact, we find all throughout Scripture that when the term darkness is used, it is often referred to as a spiritual darkness or a time of judgment. So there was a physical darkness that, uh, that covered the land, blanketed the land at the death of our Lord Jesus. But it is also, a, in a symbolic way, there is something happening on the cross, something of judgment. There is something happening on the cross that... That has spiritual symbolism as well. Just to just so that we will uh, not be confused on this point, in, at least in the literal sense, there was a first historian, first century historian by the name of Thallus, who wrote on this eclipse. In fact, Thallus had no connection to Jesus the Messiah, had no investment in Christianity, and yet he writes these words as recorded from Julius Africanus. Tha- uh, Uh, Thallus wrote these words. Listen to this first century historian write. He says, On the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. Here's a first, history, first century historian writing who has no connection to Jesus, writing of the events that happened when Jesus died on the cross. Now, this darkness that Thallus wrote of in the third book of his history calls this an appearance of darkness, darkness without reason, an eclipse of the sun without reason, out of nowhere. So in a symbolic way, darkness has been a scriptural allusion to judgment, sin, and turmoil. If you look with me at verse 34, the Bible says, The ninth hour Jesus cried out in the era, a mixture of Aramaic and, Greek, and Hebrew, saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, or in the Hebrew, zabachthani, which means to say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what Jesus said on the cross is a direct quote from Psalm 22, verse 1, that was expressed in the Hebrew that reads, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And so what happened on the cross when Jesus was pressed upon it in excruciating pain? What happened there? This proclamation just so you'll know, was not a denying of Christ's divinity, but one of human lament. Remember, there is a real struggle between the nature and character of Jesus, between His humanity and His divinity. Now, just to rewind a little bit, we talked about the character and nature of God, that He was human and God simultaneously. There is no separation. You cannot separate to say that he is God and man. They were simultaneously. You can't separate these two attributes from Jesus. So there is a struggle between humanity and divinity. And this proclamation is a reminder that God the Father could not be with Jesus on the cross while he 
suffered. He was quite literally, quite literally deserted, not only by his disciples, but also by his father. Sometimes we use the word estranged. He was estranged from the father because of his sin. Now, he was not separated from the father, as some people would teach. Jesus was not separated. He was not separated from God the father. He was estranged from the Father because of the sin that was cast upon him. And if we are not careful, we tread the road of heresy here. If God in his character, and we would say, in here, a show of hands. Who in here, by a show of hands, declares that Jesus is God? And by a show of those hands, knowing that God is the same Yesterday, today, and forever, if there was any attribute of God that changed one, one, in one minute place, if there was any character and nature of God that was changed, if there was one moment in history where God ceased to exist, the whole cosmos itself would unravel and come crashing down around humanity. So, God the Father did not separate from God the Son, but estranged, turned his back on the Son on the cross. Those who were standing by, they must have understood what Jesus was saying, thinking that he was crying out to Elijah to save him. They simply misunderstood. They simply misunderstood that Eli, or Eli, they heard him call out to Elijah. It it, it makes sense since they were looking for Elijah as a precursor to Messiah. Uh, It it makes sense they were looking for Elijah, but Elijah, the form of Elijah, the prophet Elijah came in the form of John the baptizer or one like John the baptizer. In verse 35, some of them heard him uh, calling out, Behold, he is is calling to Elijah to come and save him. And, and really, if you think of Scripture, if you lay out God's Word from Genesis to the book of Revelation, that has been a theme in humanity for all of history. It happened in the Garden of Eden when the serpent came to Adam and Eve and had, and had said, Has God said? Has God really said that if you partake, you will, you will die? There has always been this, uh, this disconnect or, a, or attempting to doubt God at His Word. In fact, there has been in humanity itself this theme of wishful thinking. To to hear God speak in something that He has not said. There has been this theme of misrepresenting the word of the Lord or not hearing God at all. You find this amongst the prosperity preachers. Uh, You you think of one like, let's say, say, uh, Kenneth Copeland, who would be, if you want to call it preaching, who would be uh, speaking in, in a pulpit. And he will say, yes, God, I hear you, God. Thank you, thank you. As if God is audibly whispering in the ear of of Kenneth Copeland, I will tell you that Kenneth Copeland isn't hearing from God. There is a misunderstanding, a misrepresenting of the Word of God or not hearing God speak at all. And woe to the person who adds the Word in the mouth of God, something that he has not said. People seem to make a habit out of hearing what they want to hear and not what God has said. Verse 36, someone ran and they filled a sponge with sour wine and 
They put it on a reed and they gave it to him to drink. And they said, no, hold on, wait, wait. Let's see if Elijah will come. Let's see if Elijah will come and, and take him down. You remember last week we talked about this, that Jesus denied this drinking of, of myrrh, which had a narcotic effect to deaden pain. And if he is the suffering servant, as we know that he is, it is obvious that he would refuse anything that would ease that pain. Every stripe that hit our Savior's back, every nail in his hand and feet, and even the denial of something to drink to bring refreshment to him, he denied in the truest sense of a suffering servant. Again, this is a, another misunderstanding of the truth and scope of the suffering servant. It, it, it is evident that, that these people, they expected a supernatural event. They expected God to supernaturally intervene. They expected Elijah to come down. And by the way, Elijah, or someone like Elijah, came in the form of John the baptizer, who said, Behold, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. So this Elijah, like a prophet, had already come and died. Jesus uttered this loud cry, and he breathed his last breath. Think about what happened in that last breath. Sometimes we gloss over this. What, what an echo across the cosmos that must have been. This echo that the incarnate deity, Christ the Lord, gave up his life, suffered at the hands of sinners, then he himself dying on the cross, a sinner, but not a sinner. And it's an amazing thought. All the gospel accounts display the death of our, of our Lord. From Matthew 27, 50 to Luke 23, 46 to John 19 and verse 30, the weight of what happened on the cross is almost beyond human comprehension. And it is. And unless God speak to us, we would never understand it. So God in His infinite wisdom has disclosed to us what happened in this almost divine baby talk. You know, John Calvin wrote of this baby talk, this degree of God's revelation as baby talk, as He speaks to us. He has to condescend to us so we can know what He says. John Calvin said this, For who is so devoid of intellect as not to understand that God, in so speaking, He lisps with us as nurses or want to do with little children. So God must condescend to our level so we may understand Him and thank God for His grace that He has done that. Through the written Word of God, He has done that. So that we can understand in some small way what happened on the cross when Jesus died. Many in here would know that yes, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Amen. But why? The death on the cross 
by, of our Lord Jesus was a bitter and sweet tragedy. Think about it. The only good person in all of history. Some people say, why do bad things happen to good people? That's only happened one time, as Phil Johnson would say. That's only happened once. The only good person in the world and of all history was brutally murdered at the hands of sinful men. But we look at the players in the narrative. You've got the Sanhedrin. You've got Pilate. And in other gospel accounts, you have Herod. You think about the Sanhedrin. The death of the Lord was an act of usefulness for them. It would free them from being condemned by a quote-unquote holy man or teacher or someone that people would see as Messiah. They needed, they needed him gone. They needed him gone. For Pilate, the death of our Lord was to appease an ever-raging, angry mob that was getting angry at every, almost every second. Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! Now, I can't get any louder than that, but you get the idea. The thieves on the cross saw it as a demonstration of extreme justice. He has done no wrong. And in all this narrative, I'm reminded of the word of God that reads in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 17 through 18. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now I've got that underlined, just as a side note for you to tuck that in. All right? If God did not send me to baptize and use this conjunction but to preach the gospel, it seems that there is a separation between baptism and the gospel. But I digress. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, wisdom let the, let the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. The salvation on the cross, amazing display. But foolishness to the Sanhedrin, foolishness to Pilate, foolishness to the Greek even, to Herod. See, Jesus bore our sin upon himself. The wrath of God was fixated upon him. In his experience, in this time on the cross, he experienced in an instant the effects of being separated from the love of God. Not separated from God, mind you, but separated from the love of God to feel the wrath of God, experience that in all eternity in a moment. So I want you to help me. Follow my logic. Help me out here. And my reasoning is from God's Word. The Bible says, according to Romans 6 and 23, that the wages of sin is is death. And if Jesus bore our sin upon himself, doesn't mean that he died, right? Doesn't mean that doesn't mean that 
God died on the cross. God did not die on the cross. God himself did not die. If he ceased to exist, the world would crumble. It means that our sin was imputed or cast upon him. If sin brings judgment, this means that Jesus suffered more than just a physical death on the cross. He experienced God's judgment on sin in in a moment. And here's the beauty of all of this. I I can't imagine experiencing something in eternity, uh, the eternity of something in a moment of time. But here's the beauty of it. This was what makes the resurrection so grand and beautiful. That he overcome death. That he rose again. My feeble mind cannot comprehend this translation. So I thank God for the baby talk. And I thank God that the righteousness was imputed towards those who have put their trust in the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I would rather have the imputed righteousness of God than what I really deserve. And that is total alienation from God. So, getting to the point of reconciliation, the death of Jesus brings true reconciliation. I want to revisit this truth and highlight reconciliation. Just what is it? What is reconciliation? Believe it or not, Webster's Dictionary and the biblical concept of of reconciliation are not far off. In fact, they merge in places. If, if you were to look this, de- this definition up, just say in Webster's Dictionary, just one, uh, just one definition of this, you would find something like this. The act of causing two people or groups to become friendly again after an argument or disagreement. In biblical terminology, it is, in biblical terminology, it is the changing of minds between two parties. And who are the two parties? Therefore... Reconciliation on behalf of the person, that's the first party, is a changing of mind from sin to repentance and turning to the Lordship of Christ. That's the first part. The second party is that of the aspect of God. It is the turning away of His wrath, the turning away of His wrath from us and giving us forgiveness because of the work of His Son. Somebody say amen. Reconciliation into a right relationship with God through the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 38, the curtain of the temple. This is where we get to the nuts and bolts of what transpired here. When Jesus said it is finished, verse 38 should be next. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and when the centurion who stood facing him, he saw this, that he breathed his last breath, he, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There is much that transpires here. And what I want to do is I want to briefly highlight a, a few verses. But I want, what I want to do is I want to, I want to jump back and, and focus on this curtain scene in closing. Uh, this, this curtain was to signify that that there was, a, there was bridged access now to God, the Father. It is because of the, de- because the death of His Son. Okay, so we're going to go back there and talk about reconciliation 
and, and what happened in this moment. So I want to come back to that in just a minute. Because of what Jesus went through, because of his fulfilling of prophecy and the darkness that stretched across the land, it brought this centurion to a place to understand that this man was the Son of God. Some would argue that this centurion commander would only see Jesus as a God or to say truly this man is a, the Son of a God and that this Roman soldier would add Jesus to the pantheon of other Roman gods. Regardless of that, regardless of that argument, he saw something extraordinary in Jesus that made him make a fair and reasonable observation. And so my application is this. Is the world looking at you? Are they able to see enough Jesus in you to know that Jesus makes a difference? And that Coming to Christ and knowing Christ is fair and reasonable. And there were some women looking from a distance. Mary, the two Marys here listed. Salome. When he was in Galilee, they had followed him there and ministered to, to him. And many other women, it says, came up with him to Jerusalem. Here's Mary Magdalene and the other Mary is mentioned in the gospel accounts. In fact, Mary Magdalene is mentioned in Luke 7, 36-39. And some would consider that this Mary was, was, a, was a prostitute, if you will. But also there's Mary, the mother of James. And there's, uh, there's other women uh, as well. One is mentioned as Salome. And it's hard to comprehend why the mother uh, of our Lord Jesus will not be at this scene. As you can imagine, there is some debate as to who, which Mary this is. But regardless of that... That what we understand is the list of these women are, are listed here, this group of women, because they saw him as Messiah, and it demonstrated that God thought very highly of women. He did. In fact, Mark uses this, uh, this listing of women to articulate that what we read is genuine, it is true, it is authentic against everything that the culture would say about women at that time. So if I was to pick up this at first century or, or in, say, in 40 A.D. or 50 A.D. when Mark would have scribed this gospel and I had read that, I would say, well, there's something to this. He's, he's putting women in these high places. And the culture didn't do that. Jesus thought very highly of women as he does all that come to him. He had disciples who were men and women. But what I want to do in closing, just a few minutes, bear with me. I want to jump back to verse 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now this is very important. To understand this tearing, one must have a little knowledge of the temple and the sacrificial system therein. On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, very important day in Hebrew history, on the Day of Atonement, according to Leviticus chapter 16, the priests were to go into the place called the Holy of Holies or the Holy Place to offer a sin offering for the Hebrew or God-fearing people, an offering for their sin. The atonement ritual began with the high priest of Israel coming in, the Holy of Holies. Uh, this day happened once a year and enforced the, the truth that sin had to be dealt with on God's terms, not ours. 
Before entering the tabernacle, the priest would wash himself to his elbows, really, really ceremonially wash. He would put on the priestly garment. He would sacrifice a bull for a sin offering for himself and for his family. The blood of that bull was, was strewn or, or, or scattered upon the Ark of the Covenant. The high priest would take two goats, one to be sacrificed because of the sin of Israel and its blood sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. The other, the priest would pray and lay his hand on his head, symbolically transferring sin and then transferring that goat out into the wilderness. This information becomes important while understanding the tearing of the veil in the temple. The place where the high priest went now has the applied work and death of Jesus, the high priest applied. Amen. No more bulls, no more goats cast into the wilderness or slain in this bloodbath in the Holy of Holies. Now the once and for all sacrifice and the blood of Christ Jesus our Lord satisfied the wrath of God upon sin. The veil was torn from top down to the bottom signifying that the work has been done and that no man has to be a mediator between God and man any longer. Why is this so important? It is twofold. Is important this way. We understand the story of redemption. The second way it becomes important in a communal sense. The church. The very beginning of Hebrews chapter 9 lays out a synopsis of the duties of the high priest of Israel. Verse 9 uses something I like to call a gospel conjunction. And in this conjunction found in verse 11, I want you to hear the word of the Lord that says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered, listen, once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons was the, and the, with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for purification of the flesh, how much more with the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise, the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. Secondly, because of our reconciliation to God through the work of the Son, we should and must be reconciled one to another. No other act in all of history demonstrates the gospel and reconciliation more than when we forgive one another. Think about it. Think about it with me. The Lord died this awful death. On our behalf. He forgave us when we were unforgivable. 
Now, in my life, I can think of people that, whoa, they're an unforgivable person. They've done some things. Think about that. God forgiving the unforgivable and that I was the chiefest of sinners myself. So if he forgave us when we were unforgivable, can't we forgive one another? No wonder the world laughs at Christians today. No wonder the world mocks the church today in America and in the world. We don't even live out what we teach. We don't live it out. We are so guilty of this. My challenge is going to be simple. First, as we reflected on the death of our Lord and what transpired on the cross, give Him praise. We talk about being thankful and thanksgiving. I mean, you can't get hired in thanking the Lord for that. Spend that time today thanking God. The second part of this invitation will be simple. I was going to have people today, you know, if you think of somebody that you need to forgive or they need to forgive you, you know, listen, pull your phone out, put that number in, call that person before you get home. But that's up to you. I'm not going to be legalistic on it. I believe God has the power to reconcile His church to Himself and people to one another. I believe God is powerful enough to do that. I'll leave that up to you. And again, I do not know exactly why God stressed this particular point in the sermon today. I just know that the power of reconciliation between one another highlights the power of the gospel. Maybe for you today, you just need to come and pray on the altar. Maybe you just need to call out to God today on the old-fashioned altar today. Maybe you just want to come and thank Him. Maybe you just want to fall on His face and ask for forgiveness. Maybe you don't know Him today. If that's you, I'll ask you if you will. Let's stand together, all of us. And if I have spoken to you today through the Word, if the Word has spoken to you, it is now our responsibility to respond to that word.